Luke chapter 6, we're picking up in verse 17. And in verse 17, what we find here is uh, the continuation of Jesus uh, having just selected his disciples um, on this uh, little particular mountain. He goes away uh, to a mountain to pray all night, you'll recall in verse 12, um, and he continues in prayer. And as he makes his way down that particular uh, mount, he calls his disciples and he chooses from them 12. And we get the list of disciples. We saw this list of people last week um, as we, or not last week, because last week was Easter, but previous to that, um, as we uh, saw the type of people that Jesus selects. A very diverse crowd. We have people who are from varying backgrounds. Backgrounds. We have just the average uh, Joe, the blue-collar worker. We've got the fishermen who are untrained and unskilled men in academics. Uh, they their work with their hands, provide for their families faithfully, but are not particularly uh, suited uh, for um, this type of intellectual work. It's not their hobby already. Uh, it's not they're not lined up in this particular spiritual work either, uh, but. They are a group of people who are following Jesus as he has called them. Uh, Jesus also selects people who are uh, opposed to one another. If you recall, he selects um, a man uh, who is a tax collector, someone who works for uh, the Senate and people of, uh, of Rome and uh, really takes advantage of the people there and has made, uh, probably was taxing the uh, the fishermen there on their catch. Uh, but then he also selects someone who is called Simon the Zealot, who basically is kind of a Jewish nationalist who would be completely opposed to uh, the tax collector. Um, and this would be a, a bit of tension there, people coming from different perspectives. And of course, then we have some other people who are just kind of like random folks along the way who are kind of don't really pop up at any other point and they don't really have a, a huge role to play. And uh, then, you know, lastly, we're told in the list there that Jesus selects someone who uh, would become a traitor a traitor, a betrayer of Jesus himself. And so this uh, group of people are not people who are particularly well-suited uh, for this work, but they are called by Jesus, they are equipped by Jesus, and empowered by Jesus to accomplish his work. And as he comes down off of, of that mountain, as he chooses those 12 apostles, uh, we get that list. Uh, we, we have to wonder, we have to consider what is next for those who would follow Jesus. What is next for those once you have decided to follow Jesus, to walk with him? What comes next? What are the things that uh, people ought to be doing? What, how then should we live as his disciples? As the apostles there are selected by Jesus, how then should they live? But how else should uh, all of us live who are not the capital A apostles, but are Christians who are, uh, who are disciples of Jesus? We follow him. How then should we live? And so, uh, as Jesus is uh, creating this group of people, remember, he's creating a new community. He begins his ministry by announcing that the kingdom of God is at hand. There's a new king and a new kingdom. 
And so as he enters in, he's beginning to explain how he wants his followers, how he wants his disciples to live as new citizens of this new kingdom. It's not the same mole. It's not the, what you would make an assumption to, but rather he is providing uh, instruction. He is providing a, a um, framework for, from which his people are to understand how they should relate to him. And so we want to look at it really in, in two parts this morning. Uh, first, we want to look at the, the type of people who are in the kingdom uh, the, and the type of people who are interacting with the kingdom, really. Uh, but then we want to also then look, secondly, at the character of the kingdom. So as we look at the text here, we're going to look first at the, the type of people who are interacting with the kingdom. But then as we look at the character of the kingdom, uh, what, what we're looking at here is really the beginning section of this portion of scripture that we referenced in verses 20 through 26, which are uh, probably in your Bible uh, called the Beatitudes. This is kind of the opening section of the uh, of a great sermon by Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, here in Luke's Gospel, he calls it the Sermon on the Plain. Um, and I could go into the historicity of like why it has different names, but it's kind of like irrelevant. It's the same uh, essential teachings here. Um, but we're, we're this is a, a masterful teaching, and what we're going to do this morning is we're just going to have a brief overview at the opening statement of the Sermon on the Mount so that we, we understand um, how we are to relate within this kingdom. Now, uh, as we come into it next week, we're going to dive deep into these particular items, so don't be too stressed out if we're not getting to all of it. Uh, we're, we're coming back, right? This is going to be part one. Um, of, of this section or the, the overview here. So first, we want to look at the people of the kingdom uh, or, or how they interact with the kingdom. We see this in verse 17. He came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. Now, Jesus comes down from the hills. Um, he returns to this spot where it has, uh, it's a little bit easier for people to get to. You'll see um, why here in a moment, as there are people who are diseased and sick, it's difficult for them to make their way up, obviously, to a more rugged terrain. And so he's at this flat place, uh, or a little bit more level place, a little bit um, of a flatter place. And as as he is there, um, we see that Luke tells us that there is a great multitude of people. These are the people who are gathering around the king. And so if you note here, if you look at the text, you'll see that Luke um, calls out for us that there are three groups of people that appear. Three groups of people that appear here. First, he notes that, again, the apostles are with Jesus. They're coming down from being selected. They're coming down from uh, the mountain with him. Uh, he says, and uh, he came down with them. The them there is, of course, the apostles. Uh, he is continuing on this journey. But then we find here that there's also a great crowd of disciples, this group of people who are followers of Jesus, they have decided to, to uh, go with him, to participate in uh, his life, in his teachings. They are um, certainly committed to him and, and they are following him around um, and being instructed by him. And then we have 
um, another group that is called simply the people, right? We've got this group of uh, who are a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. So this last group of people uh, we find here are just a group of people who are loosely connected to Jesus. They're not necessarily disciples. They're definitely not the apostles, uh, but they have interest in him. They're like, well, we heard about this guy. Let's come check him out. Let's see if this is legit. These people are not following Jesus, but they are interested in who he is. Perhaps they've heard about him. They've yet to make a commitment to Jesus, um, and they are coming from great distances. Luke tells us that they come from Judea and Jerusalem, from the sea coast of Tyre and Sidon. This is a major public event. There are a ton of people here. This isn't just some people who happen to gather. This is a great multitude of people. Uh, and they come from the most uh, focused portion of the Jewish faith, Jerusalem there. This is the religious center, and this is, of course, where the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees would have come from. They would have uh, been located and focused here. This is uh, the location of where they would have participated in feasts and temple sacrifices and uh, all, all sorts of things. But then you have, also called out, um, Tyre and Sidon. These are uh, coastal cities, and uh, they had large Gentile populations. And so um, there may have been interest in Jesus from the Gentiles as well. Of course, there were uh, Jews who probably came from this area to uh, be here as well. But, it, but perhaps Luke is giving us some insight that uh, Jesus is drawing in uh, these outsiders, those who uh, would be not just um, outsiders in the sense that they've not yet made a commitment to Jesus, but outsiders in the sense that they are uh, not a part of Israel proper. They are uh, truly Gentiles. They are people who are outside of the covenant. And so as you look at this group of people, what you'll see is it's shaped uh, kind of like a, a target, a bullseye, right? There are people who are on the, on the outer ring are just people who are loosely interested in Jesus, and then one step in, you find then that there are those who are the disciples, those who have made a commitment to Jesus and are looking to learn how to follow Jesus. And they are on that journey of sanctification, of becoming like Jesus. Uh, and then you find uh, the, or the apostles here who are not greater than disciples uh, in the sense of they're not further along in their faith necessarily, but they just have a particular office. So we want to note that the apostles here are not greater. They are simply a, a category of disciples that are, are Jesus is carving out for a particular purpose, a particular use, right? And then we find that Jesus there is in the center, right? So there's three rings. It's Jesus, the disciples, who are uh, um, who include the subset of the apostles, capital A apostles, who Jesus has selected, the 12. And then you have on the outermost ring, there are a great multitude of people who are coming from various backgrounds who do not have a commitment to Jesus yet. But this is how Jesus works. This is the process of discipleship. Uh, that, that as you get to know Jesus, you grow closer together. As these group of people who Jesus has selected, the capital A apostles, as you have one who is, uh, who is raging against 
the state of Rome, the empire of Rome, paired up with one who is uh, collecting taxes for Rome, those people start at opposite ends of the spectrum. But as they proceed through life, as they are discipled and become more like Jesus, they are in the process of letting go of those things and coming to the center where Jesus is. And the closer that you come towards Jesus, the more you will find that you relate to others who are in the body of Christ. Because it's not about the periphery. It's not about the things that are your, uh, your, um, like the things that you have affinity for or, or your hobbies that are, are, are bringing you together. But rather, it is your proximity to Christ, your connection to him, your closeness to him. And so as a group of people, Jesus will teach and instruct about how we ought to pursue him, how we ought to be a people of the king who are moving closer in intimacy toward him. This is the charge, the goal for all of us. This is the goal and charge for all people. This is the work of evangelism. This is the same thing that we are charged with by the resurrected Christ, that we are to go and make disciples of all nations, right? All that means is that we are to tell people about Jesus and let them be on the periphery, but let them see how amazing, how wonderful Jesus is and invite them to make that uh, continual step towards him to move closer to Jesus, not to us, not to our particular type of hobbies or affinities that we like, not to a particular thing. We are trying to get people to engage and know and enjoy Jesus. And so Jesus draws this wide group of people who have an absolute, like, wide-ranging relationship with him. Some people are just loosely interested. Some people have just been selected as Uh, for a particular office, for a particular purpose. But you'll note here that Jesus does these things. He, He puts his life on display and he speaks to everybody equally. It's not a separate message for each different group. It's the same message for all groups. Here's what happens. This group of people uh, come... And we were told why they come um, in verse 18. They came to him, uh, came to hear him, and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. So why did they come? Well, it's a little bit of a mixed bag here. Many came because of his healing powers, uh, you'll see. But Jesus also takes the opportunity to teach them. The people gather to uh, listen to him, his teaching, because remember, there's a group of people who are his disciples. They're coming to, uh, to be shaped and transformed by his words and his teaching. There are people who are interested. What does this guy have to say? There's a lot of people who are coming to follow Jesus, and maybe they're, let's go see what he has to say, but they've not yet made a commitment. But we find uh, here described is that there are a good number of people and the majority of the people come to Jesus to be healed by him, to experience healing, his physical touch. They come and they experience his demonstration of power over disease, we're told. They come to be healed of their diseases. This is something that Jesus does throughout his ministry. You'll see this uh, put on display again and again throughout the Gospels. 
where he encounters various people at various places in life. Some on the verge of death, some with a chronic issue that has been persisting over years. And he reaches in and he touches something that appears to be uh, not able to be cured, not able to be overcome. He simply reaches in and demonstrates his power, his authority, that he is Lord over the body, that he is the creator, that he can command that disease to cease, that in that demonstration of his power, you see that it's only through Jesus that all of the brokenness is uh, is fixed, is made whole. It's washed away. This only comes about through Jesus. But then we find also that he confronts these spiritual forces. Luke tells us there that there are also those who are troubled with unclean spirits, and they are cured. Jesus also demonstrates his power and his authority, his sovereignty over the spiritual realm. He confronts the demonic forces, the evil that exists in the world. And through both the the, uh, encountering disease and, and encountering these unclean spirits, what he's doing here is he's putting on display that he has the power. He has the authority. He is doing direct battle with the visible manifestations of sin and brokenness in this world. Disease that runs rampant. The scriptures tell us that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And so Jesus comes in and makes his declaration that his kingdom will be different. That in his kingdom, through his works of miracles here that disease will not rule and reign it will not overtake people that the spiritual forces that the people are unable to command and direct those will not win those will not control but all bow to the king all come under his power under his authority He confronts these things before a group of people who were at various places, various stages in life. For those who have just been closely selected by him, to those who are uh, committed to him, to those who are just checking him out on the periphery, who aren't his followers, but wonder what's up with this Jesus guy. And as they experience this, we see that the crowd reacts in such a way where they are influenced by him. They're impacted by him. Look at how Luke describes this in verse 19. And all the crowd sought to touch him. For power came out from him and healed them all. Now, one thing that you'll note throughout Luke's gospel is that he uh, continues to emphasize the power of Jesus. That he is powerful. And he says here that when when Jesus touches, when he heals, that he is giving of himself, that the power comes out from him. He himself is the source. He's not calling on somebody else. He's not looking to somebody else. He's not conjuring up some sort of spirit. He's not trying to use some sort of formula. 
He is the source. He is the one who brings this healing. The power comes out from him, and he heals all. And so what Luke is telling us, remember, he's writing this account for Theophilus to give insight, to give wisdom about who this Jesus is and how Theophilus might have confidence. He might have a strengthened faith in what he has believed. And as Theophilus has believed and heard that Christ is the Messiah, the Savior, the King, here Luke is telling him that is the case. You can trust that if you need healing, you come to Jesus. He's the only source. He's the only one. He's the most powerful. Now, what Luke also does here for us is he begins to draw a distinction. Because remember, the people come for the teaching and they come to experience the power of God, the healing. And as he lays this out, remember, he puts this section directly up against another section as he begins to speak into the Beatitudes. What what Luke wants us to see here and what Jesus wants us to see here is that the receiving of this physical healing from Jesus, right? There's a group of people who, 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 there's a crowd here. They've experienced his power. They're experiencing this healing. They're experiencing his touch. We're to understand that receiving of this physical healing from Jesus does not equate to salvation. Receiving the physical touch of Jesus does not equate to salvation. Just as Judas was called to be, calling, being called to be an apostle does not equate to him receiving salvation. In the same way, receiving the healing touch of Jesus, that also doesn't equate to salvation. It comes from him. It can only come from him, that healing, but that does not equate to belonging to him. Jesus does this work to demonstrate his power. You can receive that from him, but you have to respond to him. In a similar way, just hearing the teachings of Jesus do not equate to receiving salvation. Just because there was a group here that are the capital A apostles, who, you know, we end up seeing that one of them doesn't end up doing so great, Judas, Right? Then we have those who are just the disciples who have made a commitment to him. They want to follow him. And then you have the people. Just because you've heard the teachings of Jesus, that does not equate to salvation. You can't just be healed by Jesus. And just because he's the one who gave it to you, that doesn't mean that you have salvation. And also you can't just hear the words of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, and receive salvation. And while Jesus is compassionate, while he does meet the needs of people, you have to go beyond receiving and move into a perspective of responding to them. You have to respond to Jesus. He has given you something, and so now it's up to you to determine who he is based on what he has delivered. He has delivered healing. Who then is Jesus? Is he the healer or is he more? You've heard the teachings of Jesus. Is he a great ethicist? 
Is he a great academic, a great philosopher, a great teacher, or is he more? He allows us to interact with his healing, his teaching, but we are confronted with the truth of what it means to relate to Jesus and to uh, interact with him on the basis of who he is revealing himself to be. The entire crowd hears this teaching. And so the idea here, they experience the healing, the idea here is that this group of people is to encounter him and to take him as he's presenting himself. He doesn't exclude anybody. He doesn't say, this one's only for this group over here. Oh, I'm going to focus this word for you guys over here. Everybody is invited to hear and everybody's invited to receive and everybody needs to respond. And so we find here that this group of people are interacting with the king. In their varying levels of intimacy, they're made aware of him. And now, as they've experienced his teaching here, a group of uh, some teaching, and they've experienced his uh, healing, now there's a chance to respond. Now, before we get to see some of that, we want to descend into some of what his teaching was. And so we look at this uh, in verse 20, in the opening lines here of uh, the Beatitudes, and we see Jesus sketching out for us now the character of the kingdom. So if you want to be a people of the king, great, here's what it looks like to relate within this kingdom and, to, and the type of character that exists within this kingdom. Let's read it together once more in verse 20. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So as we come now to look at the opening words of Jesus' teaching here, what we gather, what we see in the text here is that Jesus speaks now to the type of character that would exist for those who would follow him. That would exist for uh, those who are in the kingdom. And he, he frames this up immediately with a very uh, difficult um, grouping here. He opens up giving four blessings and four woes. Four blessings come straight out the gate and four woes. Okay, as I said, we're going to, de to descend into this in coming weeks. We're going to look at some of these a little bit more closely. But here's what I want you to see. As there's a group of people there, they're experiencing Jesus. They're obsessed with his healing. They're obsessed with his power. And now he says to them, if you want to follow me, this isn't just about coming to get my power about coming to get the healing, coming to experience that. He says, no, now it is time for you to hear the difficult words of what it means 
to relate to me, to be a part of my kingdom. He lays out for them four blessings and four woes. Now, as he does this, he is being absolutely clear with those who would seek to come to him and say, hey, like this Jesus guy's pretty good. He's just fixing all the problems and like healing things and like all of our issues are going to go away. Jesus says, that's not the case. If you think that's the case, you're mistaken. And he equally presents that there will be four blessings here in our text this morning. You will certainly be blessed and there are those who will be blessed, but there are also things that you will experience Along that way, there is suffering that is connected to that blessing. There's hardship and difficulty that's connected to that blessing. And he also uh, gives four woes to those who would be disciples of Christ, who would seek to prize certain things. If you are somebody who places your value, your trust in some of these things, money, he says there those who want to have security with with food, those who want to have the approval of man. He says, you're not going to like this. Those things are going away. Those things are not a part of my kingdom. He says that there will be blessings, there will be difficulty along the way, and he presents these things equally. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. He's not trying to trick anyone into his kingdom. There is safety, there is security, there is healing with them. But it will not be on your terms. Now, the one thing that I want you to see as we come into this text, as we come into the Sermon on the Mount, and especially uh, as we look at the, some of these items in the coming weeks, and with the, with the uh, Beatitudes here, with the blessings and the woes, is that as you read these particular seven verses, throughout those seven verses, you find mentioned 21 times the word you or yours. As Jesus speaks, he is speaking to you, to each person. This is not the type of uh, sermon that he's laying out for his hearers, for you and I to say, you know who really needs to hear that? So-and-so. Oh, this is a great one for that person. No, this is meant to be a confrontational word to those who hear him. It's meant to make you yourself be explicitly uncomfortable. It's not meant for you to say, oh, that's a great word for this other person. Let me send them that scripture. Right? No, it's meant to be for you. So as you read it, you're supposed to come across it and say, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. You're supposed to be like, oh man, am I full now? Am I in that place? It's about you. The hearer should be focused on your own spiritual condition. Your own spiritual condition. The goal is not for you to hear these things and be focused on the spiritual condition of another. Jesus is strong enough to make sure he's got his hand on everybody. He's got it. 
right? That's not to say that we aren't to ever encourage one another. We aren't to ever exhort one another to come alongside one another. We know that that's true. There are other, plenty of other scriptures that tell us that we should be provoking one another towards love and good works, that we should not be letting each other, you know, drift away and all sorts of things. But the word here in Jesus' own phrasing is for us to be confronted by the scriptures explicitly. We are supposed to come and say, blessed are you when people hate you. We're not to say, oh, like these other people, like, you know, they're, they're the ones who are experiencing hardship or difficulty. We're to ask, well, are we missing out on the blessing of, of people being upset with us because we're, we're too quiet with representing the kingdom? Are we missing out on that? Am I missing out on that? Right? It's meant for us to, to, to ponder these things for ourselves. We've got to be diligent about ourselves. This isn't a word for others. But we've got to consider the character of the kingdom for ourselves. And so as we come into uh, this week, I would encourage you, to begin to read over this group of uh, verses throughout Luke chapter 6. It's a much uh, shorter version. It's a, it's a more truncated version of what you find in Matthew chapter, like towards the end of 4 through 7. But we find here um, that there is much for us to discover much for us to consider as we consider how we ought to be a people of the king, how we relate to him. Because the reality is, is if we are going to uh, relate to him, right? If, if Jesus says that the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel, if he's calling us to live as new citizens within this new kingdom, then we've got to be a people who do what he's asked us to do, to repent, to turn from old ways, to rethink things, to renew our mind. And this is the way that we ought to live. Because unless you are changed by, by the king, unless he comes in and, and rearranges your life, unless he makes you a new creation, you're never going to take on the character of the kingdom. It's just not going to happen. You've got to be changed by the king in order to take on the character of the kingdom. John, John the Baptist put it this way uh, in, in um, Luke chapter 3. Let me call your attention back to what he said here. He was speaking to a group of people who were really great at knowing the scriptures, hearing the scriptures, reading the scriptures. John, uh, Luke chapter 3, verse 7. Right, This is speaking to kind of some of these religious leaders who came out but also the crowds who were here at the baptism. In verse 7, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized to him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Right? They're like, oh, we better, better come out and get our fire insurance here. We better come out and get baptized because it like, seems like everybody else is doing it. I'm not really sure if it's going like, to be effective, or like, but it seems like, hey, couldn't hurt, right? Like, we might as well, might as well try this. And John says, no, that's not the way to think about it. You're not, just because you're coming in here and, and going through the motions of that, that doesn't mean that 
you're receiving salvation. He points out here to those, he says, bear fruits, in verse eight, Luke chapter 3, verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So demonstrate that you are repenting, right? What does that mean? To turn, to rethink, to reorient your life. Demonstrate that this is what you are doing. That's what he's saying. But then he speaks to them, and he says this, And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So Luke tells us in that passage that in order to understand the kingdom of God, we have to be willing to rethink, to repent, to turn, to reorient our lives, to rethink all of the things that we thought we knew. Right? He tells them, just as he's saying, you've got to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And in the back of their mind, they're like, well, like, I don't, I don't need to do that. He says, he even goes to their thought, what they might be thinking. Do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. He's like, this is not the time for you to, to go back to what you think is propping you up. That he's, don't go back to what you th- have previously thought or what you thought has provided salvation for you. No, it's time to rethink, to reorient, to repent. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Rethink, turn around, start doing things that demonstrate, that are connected to action, that show that you have are not heading down that same path. And this is the charge that we find with the character of the kingdom. You can be a people of the king. You can be connected to him. But his challenge is for you now to repent, to rethink. And the reality is, is as you come to the Sermon of the Mount, it's designed to make every single person uncomfortable. It's absolutely designed to do that. Because it's meant to put us in a place where we have to rethink all the things that we thought we knew. To rethink whether we are living according to his character. It's meant to put us in that place. But you can, as I said, you can only take on that character if you are willing to yield to the king. The character of the kingdom confronts us. It puts us in an absolutely uncomfortable spot because it, it underscores most of the time how short we are, like we, how, how short we fall in, in taking on that character. We read through it and most of it's like, yeah, like I'm like not even close. Because nobody can be that way all the time. But that's the point. That's the point. Nobody can be that way all the time. Who you are now cannot be that way all the time. But the goal is not for you to stay who you are now. The goal is for you to become sanctified, to become more like Christ day by day. So who you are now should not exist tomorrow. 
And who you are tomorrow should not exist the day after that. You should be incrementally growing in Christ. As you meet new mercies each day, as you come to him each morning, as he works in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit, you become each day more and more like Christ. We're not intended to look at this and be like, I can do all of this right now. We're intended to look at it and say, I need Jesus so that I might take on the character of the kingdom. So that I might honor him and live how he is calling us to live. Who you will be in Christ will be the person who has the character of the kingdom. You're not fully formed yet. You're not glorified yet. You're not with him yet. But yet we press on to know him more and more. And so this is something that is only possible for those who have made the jump from being the great multitude of people on the outside who are just slightly interested to becoming disciples. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to make a commitment to him. But Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He says, if you're going to follow me, I welcome that. But no, there will be blessings There will be woes. I will cause you to rethink and reorient your entire life. What you knew must go, and you will become a new creation as I remake you in the new kingdom. And so in order to take on the character of the kingdom, you must be... You must know the king. You must be connected to the king. You must be in conversation with the king. He is the one who shapes you. And so as we look at the text, as we look at this sermon in the coming weeks, this is a spot for us to ask the Lord to spiritually form us, to help us kick all of the things aside that are keeping us or holding us back from pursuing him wholeheartedly. The bad habits that we have, those are things that we can surrender to him, that we can confess to him. The motives that we have that are incorrect and wrong, things that we can lay at him. It's a time for us to come out of this period of of quarantine, to come out of this period of Uh, being isolated and come into a community of dwelling together and encouraging each other and pressing each other to pursue Jesus uh, faithfully day by day. It's It's a perspective, a call for all who want to pursue Christ daily. It's a perspective that we all want to have. We all need each other. We all need to pursue to, to press each other into this. But what more exciting thing could there be? What more exciting thing could there be than going on a wild journey with Jesus? The thing that's great about it, that's radical about it, is when you go on a crazy journey, when you go on like an insane adventure, Most of the time, it can be wild, but it's unsafe. 
Here, it's going to be absolutely insane, but you could not be more secure. You could not be more safe. So why not just throw caution to the wind? Be like, all right, Jesus, you got this. Let's go. Let's get wild. I know you got this. This is what happened with 11 people. Those people that he chose on the mountain, those 11 people decided to do that and it changed the entire world. We're here because those 11 people said, all right, let's do this. What could be done with us? What could be done in your workplace, in your families, in your cities? What could be done here amongst our church? We just say, let's go. Let's go, Jesus. We're ready. It's an exciting time. I'm really looking forward to jumping into these texts and to discussing it and to seeing where things go. So be praying about these things. Be asking the Lord to direct you, to show you how we might pursue him together. And we'll go where the Spirit leads. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your confrontational call that you don't just leave us to be comfortable, that you don't just leave us to be a people who are settled in hearing safe teachings, but you confront us um, over so many things that we're just not even aware of. There are things in our, our lives that are going to be challenged by your word. Things that are going to uh, come into direct conflict with the character of your kingdom. And as we move through the scriptures together, as we read your word day by day, would you remind us of the surpassing worth of knowing and enjoying you over the passing pleasures, the temporary nature of the world and our desires of the flesh that so um, easily distract us. And so Lord, may we be dead to sin and alive in Christ. So Lord, as we've received your word this morning, as we've received the teaching from the scriptures, as we've heard collectively the power of the word of God this morning, now again we come to the place where we respond together. We don't want to go away indifferent. We don't want to go away unchanged. These are things that are not helpful, that do not 
draw us near to you. But we come now focused with intention to recognize you as our Lord and God and King. And so Lord, call us to respond with hearts of worship now as we lift our voices to you. We love you. Amen.